My next guest is Joey Fuson. Joey was a couple minutes late to the interview today, but when you find out why, you'll understand why I was happy to wait for him. In this interview, Joey and I discuss his involvement in the cannabis industry, as well as representing clients who have been dealt the dreaded trifecta, and why some lawyers will not give their clients their cell phone number. Give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy. I'm sitting down today with my friend Joseph Fuson, a.k.a. Joey, a.k.a. Better Know Joe, part of the street lawyer mafia. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Joey is a native uh, Nashvillian, uh, Middle Tennessean, Uh, went to high school in Middle Tennessee, was raised in Middle Tennessee, went to University of Tennessee uh, undergrad, and then went to law school in Nashville. Uh, Been practicing law since 2006 and uh, started the firm Freeman and Fuson in 2009. Welcome, Joey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, how you been? What'd you do this morning? Uh, you know, going back to court is a, is different than it used to be. I was in court this morning uh, on a guy's case that is um, now luckily got into Vanderbilt recovery, so um, that worked out well this morning. And then uh, got to do something I don't get to do as often as I'd like. Got to pick up a check from the from the sheriff's department for a case that my law partner Mark Freeman handled, where they uh, they unlawfully seized somebody's money, and we got a check back. It's always nice. <laughs> no, no wonder you waited. That's right. <laughs> I, I wanted I w- to pass that opportunity up. Yeah, I would have. I would have sat there and waited, and, and no wonder they made you wait. They did. They did. That you know, we we handle, and I know you do too. Handle these civil asset forfeiture cases, and and a lot of those cases are are hard to defend. Um, but when you get somebody who's had their money taken unlawfully and and you know it, yeah. And, and you fight for them, you get it back. And so know. that's the thing about so, for the listeners that maybe don't understand what we're talking about, Joey and I both do a lot of criminal defense work, and sometimes we get clients who've been stopped and arrested and charged with a crime. It could be an allegation of drug laundering or drug uh, trafficking or money laundering or or whatever. Um, and sometimes you win the criminal case. But they, but the police keep whatever they took from your client at the scene under a separate action that is actually easier for them to win. Yeah, and then they, you know, there's criminal forfeiture. They can take the uh, the property or things that are the subject of the actual crime itself, or without charging the person with a crime. Like in my case, my client wasn't charged with a crime. So they, so they stop your client. Somewhere, I, I let me guess, I forty out towards Fairview. Uh, it's some traffic stop. My law partner handled it, so I don't know exactly okay, so the like details. Some, some traffic stop, and let's just say that we're both familiar with. There's what about an eight mile stretch of I forty that turns out to be a lot of in Williamson County turns out to be a lot of stops. Correct. Yeah. Um, so they stop your client, and they take a substantial sum of money, I assume cash, mm-hmm. from your client, but never even charge the client with a criminal case. Yeah, and then as we defended the case, as my law partner defended the case, there was never any uh, evidence presented by the state that would support them keeping the money. So they have to ultimately they have to put some proof up that the money was either the byproduct of criminal activity or was the proceeds of some criminal activity. Because it's not illegal to drive down the street with say tens of thousands of dollars cash that's correct and, and a lot of times what they'll do is they will have the drug dog sniff the money and say it smells like drugs the problem yeah, but is, every is, damn dollar bill in america smells yeah, like cocaine yeah that, that's not much proof and, <laughs> and we see these cases in nashville a lot at the airport you know people yeah. just traveling with cash and w- the way they've gotten smarter is the local government is not the one seizing it they will reach out to the local dea 
uh, groups that will then season under the federal forfeit uh, asset forfeiture process, which becomes a lot tougher to fight and a lot fewer lawyers who are willing to fight that fight. So luckily in this case, the, the state or the county uh, kept the proceeds and we were able to get it back. Now, here's the thing that I consider, frankly, to be insidious about this whole regime is that not only do they take the money, they don't give it to the schools. They don't they don't like go build a gym for it uh, doesn't even go in the general fund. It goes straight to the cops toy box. And the reason they don't involve the feds, used to not involve the feds, is they have to split it with the feds. Right. So, so they're they want to keep it local. Yeah, they are literally out there taking people's money and then buying helicopters and, and interceptors. Yeah. Guns and 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 basically Humvees and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there was so the, uh, when the legislator was in session, this this session in the in the spring before COVID and all that stuff uh, suspended it. One of the discussions was about the civil asset forfeiture process in Tennessee and whether it should be modified. And there were some legislators that were interested. Ben Rayman came and spoke. I was asked to speak, but had a conflict. Um, and I believe a couple other lawyers came and spoke about it, trying to figure out what the changes could be. And one of the major changes was where the money goes. That'll change. That'll yeah. curb action well, if they, they don't ins- get the money when you incentivize the police to go out and fund their own toy box by taking money from civilians from citizens um it's a perverse incentive it so is, good is. for you good for your partner you know you and i what we do is we stand between injustice and justice and oftentimes we stand there alone with our client in the breach yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I've struggled with over the last 15 years is I generally believe that the police are good. You and want to, right? I want to. And, and it, it's interesting. I usually go into it believing what they did is probably right. And what they're saying in the reports are probably accurate. And what they're telling me in the hallway is probably true. And it, over the years, I can tell you that's not that's not the case. In fact, I think I've been slowly evolving to where I've been more uh, skeptical of what I'm Let's reading. Say cynical. Cynical. <laughs> and I've got associate at the office that will that will tell me, and I'll just tell them, look, just just hold on, just wait. You'll you'll we'll see. Yeah, we'll see if that's yeah, true. Check with me in five, ten, fifteen years. Yeah, and I think a lot of it. I don't know what the cause of it is. I, a lot of times, I don't believe the officers are necessarily trying to be deceptive. I, I, I don't. I, I just well, generally they're trained don't think. with a vocabulary and a mindset, um, and. You know, it's relevant to what's going on. As we record this in yeah. early June of 2020, um, you know, it's it, it it's not an accident that we have the situation that we have because we've had now several decades of of police training to where now the upper echelon of leadership came up in that system. So a lot of work to be done on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting climate right now, and I think that as defense lawyers that we are in a unique position. I saw that TBA made a, uh, made a statement yesterday uh, about it. You've having, you're having uh, police chiefs stand up and, and, and try to make change, and I think the defense lawyers are also need to be in that discussion. Yeah. All right, so um, shift gears just a little bit, or a lot. Um, you want to talk about the work you're doing in um, 
and cannabis. And, yeah. And so speak a little bit about that. You, you One of the reasons I wanted to interview you is because uh, you're part of the street lawyer mafia. That's not your term. That's mine. It's a term of endearment. I, no, I love street mafia. <laughs> so, street lawyer mafia. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Joey and I have exchanged text messages um, almost trying to one-up each other about where we went to get paid and how. Um so uh, what weird situation we find ourselves in right. at 10 o'clock I, at night with a client. Right. I tell I tell younger lawyers that um, if you haven't been paid out the back door of a restaurant in cash with a bucket of chicken wings to go as a as a favor from the uh, the client, then I'm not sure you're doing what I'm doing yet. That's right. That's so, right. Well, it's just the mentality of. You know, tomorrow is not guaranteed. You know, every every day we're we're kind of scrapping and we're fighting and, and we hustle. We hustle. If you don't if you don't hustle if <laughs> if Joey's not hustling, I am. That's right. You yeah, know, yeah, it's the same mentality I had when I boxed back in college. Is if I'm not training that day, I know the guy's going to punch me in the face. Is training. That's right. Okay, so um, back to the uh, to the cannabis. What what's going on with that? And 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 like I said, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is because. You kind of you kind of have always been like one step ahead or seeing seeing what's coming. So speak to what it is you're doing in that area. Then. Sure, sure, um, and I appreciate you saying that. I, um, you know, years ago, back when um, legal, you know, marijuana started getting legalized across the the country. I wanted to be an attorney in the state that represented um, people either charged with the cannabis-related offenses, marijuana offenses, or involved in helping businesses if it became legal in Tennessee. You know, that was one of the things I kind of projected out. And so, you know, when that failed, I guess, in 2012-13 timeframe, the byproduct of that failure was the hemp laws that came across in Tennessee. So, you know, cannabis is the plant and marijuana is the illegal version of the plant and hemp is the legal version of the plant, which is what Tennessee adopted in 2014 and 15. And so... So to be clear, it is now legal to grow and sell hemp. It is. So cannabis is the plant. Marijuana is over 0.3% THC and hemp is under 0.3% THC. And those words are not words of science. They're just words of, they made up. Marijuana right. is a made up word and, and <laughs> hemp is kind of a made up word. The, right. the, the plant is cannabis. But yeah, now in Tennessee, it is absolutely legal to possess, consume, grow, manufacture cannabis, as long as the cannabis you're doing that with is less than 0.3% THC. Um, and so when I started uh, following that in 2014 and 15, there really wasn't a market for hemp. Hemp was a thing that was making paper and clothes and, and textiles and, and, and goods and bags and things like that. You had beauty products. But what happened in 2016 and 17 and then into 2018 is the, 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 the research that started developing that allowed for you know, the CBD kind of boom that hit. So people realized and, and people started acknowledging the benefits of CBD, which is contained in, in cannabis, um, whether it's hemp or marijuana. Either one. Either one. And so you had people starting growing and cultivating hemp the same way they were growing and cultivating marijuana, creating products the same way and highlighting the CBD, which is a cannabinoid instead of the THC, which is the public enemy number one. Now there's two questions I want to follow <laughs> up with. One is, this has thrown law enforcement into a complete tailspin. Tailspin. Because yeah. you cannot on the side of the road tell the difference between the contraband and the legal 
and the legal product, right? Sure. Yeah. And you talk about being ahead of the curve here. I was seeing the products before law enforcement was seeing the products because I had clients that were growing this stuff and saying, hey, look at this. It looks the same. It smells the same. It, right. it, it feels the same. One of these is weed. One of these isn't. And you can't tell the yeah. difference. And then when law enforcement kind of realized that there was, the, there was a problem, and it is a problem. I mean, the law in Tennessee with plain smell of, of marijuana, yeah, um, that just that's... it's still the law. I know, but... It, it, like, it, it can't be for long, but no. it currently is right now because the argument is cannabis smells like cannabis, whether it's got THC right. or not, and, and THC doesn't smell. So and doesn't you can't see it. It's a cannabinoid that's contained inside yeah, the plant I mean, it, material. It literally requires a lab test. Correct. Yeah, it's the it's the, it's the same. Is there thing. a side is there a side of the road uh, test available yet? There are two tests that they can use in conjunction. One of them just tells you whether it's cannabis or not. Well, that should be fairly obvious. That should be obvious. The <laughs> second one tells you whether it's high in CBD or high in THC. It doesn't tell you how much. So it's kind so of a it, litmus test, if you will, so pink or a, blue. So it's a it's a rough, maybe... They call it presumptive test. So okay. it's presumptive that it, what right. you've got is marijuana. Now, so the, so the problem, the nightmare scenario for the police, of course, is they stop a large shipment and they get all gung-ho. And they start arresting people and seizing stuff. And then weeks later, the lab confirms this was totally legal. Now the crop's been, now the shipment's been destroyed and you've charged these people who were absolutely innocent. Yeah, I had that case in Wilson County at the beginning of all this about a year ago where a tractor trailer uh, that was a transit, I mean, it was, it was a courier service, but uh, a tractor trailer with maybe 600 pounds of And hemp. at the time, what was the going rate for that? It would have been a lot, um, and, but it was hemp. And they seized it, and the guy showed the paperwork in the Wilson, you know, Wilson County. They seized it anyway, and we had to work for probably two— Operating under the guilty until proven innocent Correct. theory. And then the problem was they took it, and they had no plans on testing it. So they just had it, and so well, we had it's, to— It's perishable. It's like a load of lettuce, It is, right? and so we were reaching out to them very aggressively saying, we need to test it. We, we'll test it. And so we ultimately got the district attorney, and I, I appreciate him doing this, agreed to let us— Send it to an independent lab, and we got a sample from every one of the crates. So, everyone so it we, wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like one of these is is marijuana. No, they're in big, and nine of them are CBD. It, yeah. Yeah, there wasn't any trickeration. That's right. Well, they're all in big, huge white totes. Right. So it looks like an agricultural product. And exactly. And I will show you the pictures. It's pretty funny. It looks very much agricultural. But we got them all tested, and uh, within a few weeks. Our lab came back and said it was all legal. And the interesting, funny thing is, so I'll, I won't go off on a tangent too much, but you know the way they determine it is based on delta nine THC. It's not the total amount of THC. So it is the delta nine based on a dry weight. So when the tests come back, okay. Get, so let me interrupt you for just yeah. one second. All right. Any doubt about whether, if you are a hemp grower or anyone like that, any doubt about whether or not this is the lawyer you should be hiring? <laughs> should like he's speaking in your language. I would assume. So That's go fine. ahead. <laughs> well, there's 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 the total amount of THC and there's the delta nine, and the delta nine is the only reading you have to base it on. The DA got the reports, and one of them had a total THC that was higher than 0.3. So he was like, aha! He was about to prosecute my guy for having less than one percent THC in a product, marginally over the the limit. Uh, and I had to redirect him um, like, uh, on, let me yeah. on vacation. I'm sitting there saying they're about <laughs> to indict your guy. So I call him from uh, the vacation house and say, you can't do this. You're wrong. It's not. You reread it. And he apologized and said, no, we're not going to indict your guy. But. So I said a minute ago that there were two things I wanted to follow up on. The other is, so this is the Wild West of science, medicine, uh, 
crystals, homeopathy. Like there's not, as far as I can tell, there's not like some standard uh, in the industry for knowing the difference between CBD that's worth paying a significant amount for to help you versus junk someone made in a garage. Yeah, that that's probably what you're going to find to be the biggest problem in an industry like this is because once the, the, the cannabis is no longer viable, so once it's harvested, there are no laws that govern it. There's no, there's no gall, there's no laws, there's no regulations. So not all CBD oils and no. uh, and drops and everything else is created equal. Uh, far from it. In fact, what you'll see in most of the gas stations at the checkout counter, you'll see some of these products. But if you turn them around, you'll realize that a lot of the hemp products are based on pressed. They're pressing the hemp seeds, and so that's one way that, that they can say that it's a hemp product, but it's really not going to give you any of the cannabinoids. And then the other CBD, when they say it's got CBD in it, you don't know how much, you don't know how what, they got it out, how they got it, where it was, you just don't know. And I think that one of the reports I remember watching from about a year ago, where they went around to a lot of stores and took samples from all the different stores and tested, and they found that uh, the majority of them didn't have what they said they had, and a lot of them had more than what they said. So it's not so that they're... the producers don't necessarily know what their quality control is. That's right. And so you, what, what I would encourage, and I have encouraged a lot of people I know, family members that take CBD products and benefit heavily from them, um, is to go find somebody local that you can track it from seed to table. You know, basically they grew it, they got the seeds, they harvested it, they manufactured it, they put it in a bottle, they put it in their so store. If you if other than finding somebody local that you can like kind of vet, who's willing to... I assume somebody like that's willing to brag on their situation they right? do and they'll provide a coa so when you go check out there's a barcode on the back of the bottle you can hit it with your phone most of the time and you'll be able to get the coa which is a certificate of authenticity that says it is what it is it and came it from this plant and here's this the, day and mm-hmm. and okay. so you can really track what and i've got my father takes cbd oil at night to help him sleep he was on ambient for a period of time and which is bad and yeah, yeah. Uh, and got off of it with these cbd products so i can tell you firsthand that there's there is some benefit to to these products Okay. Um, anything else you want to add about that? No, I mean, one of the things I think that's that is important now is that, you know, I think that people who find themselves in a situation where they are consuming hemp products um, and they're, they're you're using them, they're smoking the hemp flour, they're using the CBD products, that they just need to be, you know, making sure they're operating with, you know, they don't need to put their hemp flour in a bag, in a Ziploc baggie. They don't need to <laughs> right. carry around oil right. and, and consume stuff. That They need to be responsible because that will avoid the confusion. Because from a law enforcement standpoint, I, they're in a tough spot. I mean, I'm just to be frank, they're looking at a product that looks just like something yeah. that's been illegal Every- for their whole lives. Right. And they're in their struggle. So if you look at, interestingly enough, there's actually a statute about the paraphernalia. There's actually factors like right. was it in a package, and right. you know there should be some standards that apply that they follow. And I think that that'll slowly change. Did you follow, or were you involved at all in in the the Wilson County raid? Or the Rutherford County? The, oh, was it Rutherford County? Yeah. Okay, Rutherford County raids. Were you? Did you get any? Did you get a piece of that? I tried. No, I'm, I consulted with a couple people, and um, Tommy Santel and. Um, a couple of the guys, Frank Brazil, ended up getting a hand. They, they kind of got a couple lawyers that handled them all, 
and they really did a good job. I mean, they what they found out, and what recently happened, the, the Supreme or the Court of Appeals just came back and said there's no immunity for Jennings Jones and, and John Zimmerman, so they're going to have to go to trial, potentially exposed, personally, personally exposed. exposed. So that just came out, but they did a great job, and what they found that that's the, the DA and the sheriff. That's right, okay. and so what they found through the discovery process is not only that the DA's office knew that the TBI wasn't able to confirm that the products were illegal and proceeded anyway. Yeah, so to back up, um, what what happened was they, the, the Rutherford County Sheriff's Office raided and 20. padlocked and seized the contents of a couple dozen stores yeah, that was, were selling CBD stuff. Yeah, they were selling. And they did it under the guise that it was that it was all illegal, the marijuana version. Yeah, with the media involved. I mean, if you yeah. remember the media right. oh, was yeah. there well, on they the front. Walked it. They perp-walked the whole thing. Um, so they, they were declaring victory early. Um, and it turned out that what they had seized was not the illegal version, but the, the, the legal version of CBD, cannabis. And generally, normally, the police and prosecutors are immune from liability, meaning that, okay, if they make a mistake, even if they almost, even if they deliberately sometimes, <laughs> or let's say if they make a mistake, you can't sue them and win. But in this it's case, a, and it's a strong cloak of. Yes, I mean it. it, it it's, right. it's heavy. But in this case, in that particular case, it's now been decided that the sheriff and the DA that were involved in that face potentially personal liability, meaning their own money, their own homes. That's now what's at stake. Yeah, and that's that's a, I think that's a serious development because I, you know, you talk about what's going on with with you know George Floyd and some of the other pri- prior attempts of for the you know, district attorney's offices to pursue law enforcement for making mistakes or doing something intentional, and you've often seen that cloak of immunity apply, and in this case, it's not. And I think one of the things that that is is really um, telling of why it doesn't apply is that they knew, they knew, they knew because the CBD in the product. They didn't know where that CBD came from. Right. Theoretically, if the CBD had been extracted from an illegal marijuana plant... They, but they kind of took it at a superficial level. We don't want this in our... I assume. I mean, I haven't spoken to Well, they them, did but, it initially, but the problem is, is once they were told, hey, hey, you can't do this right. by the TBI, they, they forged ahead. Right. So they, 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 they initiated with superficial understanding, mm-hmm. and then they doubled down. Doubled down. That's a good and, word. And the double down is where they got into real trouble. If they'd have bailed... When they got the information, they might not be where they are. Well, they wouldn't have padlocked all those stores with with uh, the judge's Judge Taylor's uh, name right across the front of the door. And when they even worse, and I'll, I'll round this out. The worst part of it is they showed up in court at the first court appearance for all these businesses with a person in the hallway set up at a table, is what I understand, to get people to sign up for diversion. They were trying to settle them all immediately. Right, because once you plead to diversion, your your civil case That's is, right. is DO. I think they, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm well, speculating. Presume, right? I'm presuming <laughs> and speculating. They knew they were had some yeah, trouble. You and, and I have both settled countless cases where like there was a dubious charge and but it there might be a big enough problem for the client that rolling the dice going all the way to the mat might not be a great idea for the client and the DA's like we just need you to plead guilty to this one little thing and yeah, it's, it's like a, it's kind of the idea of getting too good of an offer you wonder why you're getting too right. good of an offer <laughs> and, and so once the client makes you know what i tell people that part of what i do is i try to get the client a tough choice right like if the DA comes to me and says plead to the max, take the max sentence, serve your time. Well, I've got nothing to lose by going to trial, 
right? That's not an offer. That's not an offer. That's a that's a an ulti- that's a demand, right? <laughs> that's an ultimatum. But things get. I I feel like I've done at least some of the job. If I can get the DA to make my client an offer, that we at least have to pause and consider the risks, right? Like I know I know the client doesn't love this offer, but it beats by a good bit the worst case scenario if we go through this trial and everything else. Now I love to try a case, but ultimately my job is to put the client in position to make the choices about what they eat, where they sleep, and who they hang around with. Because if you're not making those choices, you're in jail. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest, I guess, fears that we have as defense attorneys that we tell our client, nope, don't take that offer that you're when you're not going to go to jail to protect your record and then go to court and you know, and, and there's no telling, especially with Yeah, um, what the people want you to people ask us all the time, well, what are my chances? Man, I'm not a bookie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, and I'm not going to have to do the time. And that's why you're seeing, I mean, you see the, the, the such fewer trials take place because of that dynamic of people not wanting to, to roll the dice. And there's less of that going on. And the system is now set up to encourage settlement. Where right. So, back in the day, I think you just showed up and if you didn't get it worked out that day, you teed it up. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, not surprising that they tried to quietly settle all those CBD cases. Yeah, and that didn't work out. I mean, now that now that they've all all the business owners have sued and and there's litigation now in federal court that will we'll get maybe we can follow back up a year from now and, and see what and happens. See what happens, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, did you always want to be a lawyer or did it come to you? You know, I I started uh in in high school. I um watched a movie uh and and I, it's so funny. I always laugh when I tell the story. I don't know. I that. hope it was my cousin Vinny. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know the name of the movie actually. For the for listeners I will tell you, as a person who actually has practiced law for almost three decades, the very best lawyer movie, from the standpoint of watching a lawyer do what lawyers really do, is in fact my cousin. My Vinny. cousin Vinny. It's 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 dynamic cross at its finest. I've been in front of that judge fifty times. <laughs> I promise you, you have too, man. I read on your bio that you've been in like thirty counties. I lost count of how many I've been in. I don't yeah. know. It might be thirty. It might be eighty. But whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I used to. I used to have a map. I think Elizabeth does now. Elizabeth Russell does. But I used to have a map that I would keep. So does Amanda Gentry. Oh, so it was Amanda. That's who I'm yeah. thinking of. Is Amanda. Um, but yeah, I used to do it because I, the, the cannabis. You know, when I wanted to be the cannabis lawyer in the state. I kind of opened myself up to cross the state, you know, all over the state. And I've had cases all the way up in Elizabethtown and Ducktown. Um, I've been in Lake County. I've been in all kinds of places, usually just related to cannabis, marijuana, because that's what people in other counties want somebody that specializes in that area. And a lot of times out there, they're like, I don't trust anybody. That's right. You get a lot of that too. I don't trust any of these crooked. They're all, they all go to church (laughs) together. But what I was, um, what I was going to say is, um, Oh, what was it? I was going to... Oh, it doesn't matter. But, well, so you, want, you, did, you didn't always... You, you found out you wanted to be a lawyer by watching this movie. Basically, yeah. I'm studying for some math exam, I think, my junior year of high school. And I'm, you know, that's the time you start thinking about maybe what you want to do. And I, uh, I watched this movie where this, this uh, family had been falsely accused of sexually abusing these kids in a daycare. And I got and I watched the movie, didn't study for my exam. And I remember I walked out to my mom. I said, I think I'm going to be a lawyer. And she goes, good. You, you like to argue. That'll work out well. Right. And, and that, apparently you're no good at math. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm actually fairly good at math, which is funny. I, I'm not really good at science and some of the other stuff. But And then with that direction, when I went to college at UT, I decided to sign up for a political science because I thought that was what I needed to do pre-law and got into this program there where it was a pretty interesting program where I was able to do a thesis on the death penalty and 
um, end up graduating in this honors program that was really interesting. But I, all the political science stuff I completely lost. But in the course of doing that, I wasn't dissuaded from going to law school. So when I graduated from college, I took a I traveled, and so I took some time off, and then decided I want to go to law but school. But you worked in law firms along the way. Yeah. So, so like I, when I was in college, be, yeah, even before you were, you were. You were kind of getting your feet into it. Yeah, when I went to college at UT, I my second year, I basically my first year, I worked for Bill Frist, and this is funny. I'll, I'll take a little side road. I worked for Bill Frist for a, a semester, and my job three times a week was to come in, take the local newspapers, cut up articles that I thought were relevant in the local newspaper that Bill Frist would be interested in as our senator, and I would um, paste them onto white pieces of paper. And then fax him to his office in Washington D.C. <laughs> that was how he got his news of his local filtered news by, filtered by an filtered intern, by Joey. But then I started working at law firms as a runner, and back when they didn't have GPS, and so I would just take off in the afternoon after school and go work at this law firm and go serve subpoenas and summons all over rural Knox County. And yeah, I did that. I kind of basically I decided I wanted to be a lawyer without knowing what it meant. Um, and just started getting into that world and liked it and liked the people I worked with. And I remember when I was a young lawyer, or younger than I am now, I was out serving uh, subpoenas for a criminal trial when I was back when I was working with Ernie Williams. And we had this crazy assault case out in rural Williamson County where everybody knew each other and they didn't like each other. It was like this family like feud Berwick. thing that had happened. Yes, in fact, it was. <laughs> and uh, so I'm riding around with my client i think it was my client's brother maybe because he knew all these people that had to be subpoenaed not all of them were friendly so we we're riding around out there and uh and we pull up in this one place and there's this big ass dog in the back of a pickup truck and he looks at me and he goes i'm gonna let you handle this one (laughs) and i'm like wait what he goes i said is that dog mean he goes I don't know. <laughs> so I go to the door and I serve this guy. And uh, I say, hey, I've got a, you're, are you so-and-so? And I turn around and the brother that's driven me there, he goes, that's him, you know. Yeah. And I serve him and um, finish up doing all that. The trial got continued, so I had to go back and do it again, right? So I go back to the same guy's house like two months later. And I go to the door and I knock on the door and he comes to the door again and I go, hey, you're, you're so-and-so. He goes, no, I ain't. I go, dude, like, like, I already you. I, I, I've only met you twice. The first time was when we did this the first time yeah. and today. So I know who you are. So you're served. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's, if you, like I said, if you haven't been paid out the back of a, of a restaurant <laughs> or gone out to Burwood and served subpoenas on hostile witnesses, then... You may or may not be a street lawyer. So good. I love it. I'll tell you a story. My father worked for the phone company for a long time, and and he's got a a 12-pack of beer insert, or a case beer insert that goes between the 12 on the top and the 12 on the bottom, where somebody had written in marker, hey, phone man, here's a BB gun. If the dog acts up, shoot him. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a BB gun sitting right next to the side, so he's basically supposed to arm himself with a BB gun to fix the phone line. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. No, I, I uh, might have, I might, yeah, might have found me a dog lover to do that one. That's so good. No, but yeah, then when I when I came back here to Nashville, just to follow up on what you were saying, I I, um, I started working for a law firm, Neil and Harwell, for a short period of time, and I was Jim Neal's 
personal assistant runner. So I would take Jim. So you're Mills. not a lawyer at this point. No, no. Okay. I was just graduated college. I was I had been in Spain for six months. So when I came back, I didn't want to go right into law school. So I took some time off and worked at Neil and Harwell. And I would basically go and get Jim Neal's cigars and get his car clean. The important and stuff. The important stuff. And then I got a job with a guy named Tom Neville. Who oh, was, I remember Tom. He's yeah. been at Bass. Yeah, and his his stories is, is, is. I should probably go get an interview with him. Oh man, his stories. It's 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 a book. It's a movie. Um, Tom, at this point in time in his career, when I went to work for him, Tom was a personal injury lawyer. Uh, but prior to that, he had been a managing partner at Bassberry and Sims. Had been indicted by the federal government. Had been tried along with Judge Brothers uh, and Russell Brothers, his cousin, uh, in federal court and got a uh, hung jury. And then represented himself in the second trial with the assistance. Now, are you with him all this way? No, this was in the 90s. I was okay. in high school. I knew his son, Chris, Okay, really so well. you came to him after that. Yeah, after he then, he, his second trial, he got acquitted. He represented himself, and the federal prosecutors ended up getting um, sanctioned and, and charged with prosecutorial misconduct, one of which ended up leaving the feds and working in Davidson County for 20 years. But, uh, but yeah, he got a, a not guilty, got himself acquitted with the assistance of Bobby Lee Cook, who was, they made Matlock after, so... But he, uh, and then after that, that's when he started over in essence and started that personal injury firm. And I came to work for him as a case manager. And, and then he had some problems that developed at the end of that run. And now he's, he's currently not practicing law anymore. But his story is fascinating. Yeah, it really I should is. probably go talk to him. It really is. Um, so, but that, that's kind of where I started. And after that, when I graduated law school, I started working on my own and, and worked with my friend Mark Freeman, who uh, I got to know through working with Neville's office. And then in 2006, got licensed. And then by 2009, had started Freeman and Fuson. Um, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen happen in the courthouse? <laughs> um, I've seen a couple people take off running and not realize the doors open the opposite way and just crumble into the doors, <laughs> which is every time. The juvenile court's the best because when they find out they're going to jail for child support, right. they just turn they and the doors don't open out. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I've seen that happen. But, um, you know, God, inside the courtroom, it's funny enough, I don't think I've seen too many things actually inside the courtroom happen that are as crazy as you would think. I mean, what happened in Wilson County three or four months ago. I didn't see that take place, but that's probably about as crazy as it gets. The guy who just lit up the joint sitting in front of Judge Hamilton at the podium. Oh, I hadn't heard this. Yeah. Yeah, he got he got a bunch of publicity nationwide because he I was... I bet he got held in direct contempt, too. Direct contempt, did 10 days, and then... He's out. He's a hero. <laughs> okay. But no, I, I, I haven't you know, seen much that, that, that would really shock anybody's conscience. Um, I haven't. No. All right. Um, what do you like to do when you're not doing this? Uh, fish. I fish. I like to fly fish when I can. Um, I I've got two girls, so I spend a lot of time with them. I like the water, so we'll go up to the lake. And but but mostly, if I get free time, it's going to involve some type of fishing activity, um, whether it's fly fishing in the a stream somewhere, or going out on our boat and trying to hit the lakes up. But I just you know with what we do, and Danny, you can probably speak to it better than anybody. I just don't have tons of time. When you add in the work, the clients, and then the family, there's just not tons of time. And what's happened with this COVID thing is it's it's forced us to kind of reassess what's important and what, yeah, what we're spending so, our time on. Um, discreet question and then a bigger open-ended question. Um, when people hire you, how much access do they do you give them? Do you give them the do you give them the cell phone and do you? Yeah, I give them full access. Yeah, see, I do too. And a lot of lawyers brag, you know, like, oh, I don't ever give a client my cell phone. And well, I'm they're like, not they're not a part of the street lawyer mafia. I guess no, <laughs> no, they're not. And here's the thing: um, people expect that they can contact the people they want to talk to, right? you're they're paying you well they're paying you well um and but 
ultimately, the reason that a lot of lawyers say, oh, I would never give my client a cell phone number is because they're worried that the client's going to abuse the access. Yeah. The truth of the matter that I've found is the client who's going to abuse the access is going to abuse it no matter what access you give them. So they may be calling your paralegal or they may be leaving 10-minute voicemails on your system or they may be blowing up your email or whatever. But the problem is not that you did or didn't give them the cell phone number. The problem is that's what they are. That's what the, that person does. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the, I mean, I, I start. it's changed, right? When I first started practicing, I was just by myself. So they got, that was the number I had. So I gave them to people. And then as I've evolved to where my client, you know, I've got you know, 80 to hundred cases that are active. Um, I have never changed my pace, but my idea is kind of what you said is that if they're going to abuse that, then they would be abusing loose. my paralegal right, too, loose. which, you know, so if they're calling my office to get, to talk to me about something, Hey, I, I got this class done at where, where do I send right. the, 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 the proof? Well, my paralegal can intercept that call pretty right. easily, but if they're calling about something related to the case, then my paralegal has got to take the note, has then got to, to has put the, puts the note into Clio, which is a case management software we use, then pass the note to me in some way. Then I've got to call the client back. And so we've spent 10 minutes administering, administering the phone call. When if he could have just answered the call, if I could have just answered the call directly. And then, you know, I, I, here, I'll just tell you what you said was great is it's about the, you know, the outliers are the ones that abuse it. The typical client does not. They'll send a text. Hey, can you follow up with me? Hey, I need to talk to yep. you. That's the average client. And the ones that abuse it, like you said, are going to abuse it anyway. And those are the ones I tell, don't, you can't contact me anymore. Right. You're abusing this. Yeah, here's your money. Go away. Or well, And most of them respond and say, oh, sorry. Right. I, I, I'm not, sorry, I'm not right. abusing. I didn't mean to abuse yeah, it. I, and, and they're once, scared. They're yeah. nervous. I mean, yeah. what, what I tell my staff all the time is you're getting people a lot at of times at their worst. At their worst. So they're going to be rude. They they're didn't ever want to meet you. They didn't ever want apart with the money that they had to earn to hire you. That's right. They didn't want to face this uncertainty. And they're scared. So when people are scared, we're seeing this right now in our country, when people are scared, they act somewhat irrationally. And so what a lot of times I can use that moment when they're blowing up my cell phone to say, hey, let's talk for a second. Right. What's going on? Right. I've told you, here's how it's going to play out. Is there something you've learned since then that's changed? Right. You know, and a lot of times you'll be able to talk them down and it goes away and they're, yeah. they're happy. Ten and minutes and they're thrilled. Yeah. No, it's, it's, they it's, leave you a good review and on to the next. The problem I've had, and I know you've had this too, I'm sure you have, is that I've got to be more disciplined myself. It's not them. <laughs> they're needing my help. They're paying for my help. They deserve my help, especially when they pay for it and they meet with me and I tell them I'm going to do a good job for them. I've got to be disciplined to not answer the call at 1030 or respond to the email at 1130. Right. So you got to, that's the other thing is that it is up to us to set the reasonable expectation Absolutely. and, and the, you know, the boundaries, right? So now what, what happens is you wind up with some clients who get up at four in the morning. That's when their day starts. And then you have others who don't go to bed until two in the morning. And when those start to overlap, suddenly, you know, the phone is, you know, dinging and tweet and, and, and ringing constantly. So it is up to us to set the boundary and say, Hey, um, you can text me whenever you want, um, but after about six, I'm on family time, so you're probably not going to hear from me until tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so I'm, I mean, I remember people back, I mean, this isn't that long ago, lawyers saying, I would never text with a client. Well, most, I mean, I can watch my daughters and how they communicate with their friends, and texting is not a, 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 privilege a, a kid's or, thing anymore. Uh, no. it, it's, it's, it's a lot of times a very direct way when we're sitting in court. That's the if re- I've got a client who can text me and say, hey, when's court tomorrow? And I can shoot back 9 o'clock. Right. That, see, that's the reason that I give people my cell phone number. Is partly so that they have this, you know, they have the expectation that 
I'm on there, you know, like I'm, I'm actually working for you. You don't have to, you don't have to call someone and leave a message, blah, 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 blah. So it's kind of a competitive advantage for me versus the lawyer who will not ever give them the cell phone number. But the other reason is just selfish. I need to be able to text people and go, Hey, um, you went and got that drug screen, right? Or, Hey, um, you're late for parenting exchange. What's up? Yeah. Or, Hey, remember court tomorrow, 9 a.m. Yeah, bring, and, and the idea the of thing or and the idea of sending a formal letter or that's a waste of time. Okay, or I even don't have or letterhead. Even, I do. I, I promise <laughs> you, I do not. I have digital letterhead. So, but I promise you, I could not. I cannot remember the last time I sent a letter that that had my digital letterhead on it uh, and a signature. If you send me a letter, if you if you, you the scan lawyer, it in, <laughs> I, I scan it in, and if it if it is worthy of a response. I use my PDF editor and my and my Apple iPad and my pencil, and I write on your letter and I send it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that is definitely the 21st century move right there. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, we. It's funny you you said that. I can't remember the last time I sent a hard letter, and I I can tell you, I can't really either, except for the fact that over the COVID period of time, I've started handling some of my business clients' matters, and we've sent formal letters because we don't have email addresses. So I think I've probably sent more hard pieces of paper the last couple of months. I won't do it. I'm not. I'm, I'm not going backwards. If you're if 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 you want a lawyer who has a ream of 24 pound bonded uh, bonded embossed uh, letterhead that that they paid 400 dollars for. Um, I can refer you to someone. That's right. That, they're, that, they're in a really tall building. Yeah. They're, yes, that's right. They 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 do not see the street. They they park in an underground garage and ride an elevator to the twentieth floor. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add one thing about this: the phone call before we change subjects. But you know, until your phone stops ringing, yeah. You you you, you now when the phone rings, I look at it and go, "What's going on?" I, yeah. You know, I'm more excited because over the course of April, when when the phone stopped after you know, the, people the, just locked down. They did, and you nobody realize, was getting arrested. Nobody was filing for divorce. Nobody and I realized how much I enjoy those phones ringing. I, I want people yeah. to call with their problems. And yeah, like it's how I, hold your, I was sitting on the back porch for most of April, drinking coffee, holding my phone, going, "Ring for <laughs> <laughs> anyone, anything." Yeah, and ours. And I was telling you on the phone, ours started back up. Um, really, I mean, we had a pretty big delay. I mean, we have six lawyers in our office, and so the phone rings pretty pretty uh, substantially throughout the day. And we had a, a almost immediate stoppage. I mean, when yeah, when, it when, went. When, I started to think. I didn't know what. To like, and April was really bad because April was just a byproduct of, of, I mean, the whole country was shut down. But right when Governor Lee came on and said he was opening up the state, we started, boom. our phones started ringing. Yeah, and I do divorce work. So I got uh, all the, I got all the calls. I'm getting all the calls now where it's basically, I just spent a month locked up with this son of a bitch. And I decided I'm, do- I'm done. <laughs> I really am done. Well, it was, so one of the things that picked up pretty quickly, and it really didn't stop, is our orders of protection. Yeah, I, so- I, I, I hate to be mercenary, but I am a mercenary. When I, back in March, I called my website people and I said, hey, um, shift focus. Uh, DV, domestic violence, and orders of protection, push that. Yeah, we did a blog almost immediately saying, you know, this is going to, you know, a domestic violence. And we call it the trifecta. I don't know if you've heard me talk about the trifecta. No. So in our office, we have the trifecta, and it's when somebody calls and they've been charged with a domestic assault, 
Yep. And there's an order protection. Order protection. And then there's a divorce. And then there's a divorce behind it. Yeah, the trifecta. So we got a couple of the trifectas that came in and we actually did a blog post that talked about the, what the need and why it's helpful. And I really believe this, why it's helpful to have a lawyer handle all three of them or one firm because a lot of them overlap. I mean, the domestic assault stuff overlaps with the OP. The OP absolutely overlaps with the divorce. Especially if it's custody. And if you're timing, I mean, the idea of if you, uh, we talked about. You don't want them to testify. And if you do, you want to be the one to prep them to make sure right. their testimony is going yeah. to be consistent. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to track down some other lawyer and find out what their idea of handling, because I have an idea. Well, the, and, the, and we've had it where, you know, it, it's, it's the one bad night, right? It's yeah. the one bad night right, where exactly. you come home, yeah. too much Everything, to drink, you snap. and it right. does. And the order protection comes, the divorce Man, I had follows. Three of those. I had three of those before the courts got shut down, where basically it was that. It was, the, the COVID thing was brewing, stress was rising, uncertainty and it was that. It was came home, had a couple drinks, got into the same old argument. Went a little and, too far. And the next thing you know, you know, somebody calls the cops who they you know, they just want the police to come and tell them to calm down or go spend the night at the hotel or something. And the next thing you know, there's a full blown arrest and order protection and everything else. Well, the order protection for everybody who doesn't know, I mean, it's kind of the poor man's divorce. I mean, you can file an order of protection without any fee to you. In fact, the statute says you can incur no cost as the petitioner right. of an order of protection. And you can get your husband or wife removed from the home. You can get temporary support. Custody. You can get custody. You can have obviously the firearm provision that doesn't allow anybody. Yeah, it's to own a fi- powerful. It's a powerful thing. It's, it's the it's a microwave divorce. It is, and what happens is if you have the domestic assault that comes with it, there's bond restrictions that also apply. Yep. So you have bond restrictions in one hand. You have the order of protection restrictions ex parte because again there hasn't been a hearing yet. They just grant those immediately, right. and then you potentially have a custody battle with in with temporary custody, all. and we encourage a lot of people in those situations, especially if the divorce is looming, to try to get it into divorce court. And you, you can probably speak to that. Yeah, is yeah, that, that that's the place. In, yeah, make the deal. Get everything settled down. Yeah. Like, take the air out of the room for a little bit. Get it all calmed down. And, and the then, order of protections are a lot of times at the recommendation of the police officers that people don't really aren't. In, I mean, it's not any ongoing fear. It's that they are mad and they're angry, and the officer says, "Well, you should take this out." Yeah. And they take it out without really understanding the impact of it. That yep. the husband can't or the wife can't come back to the home. Right. And they can't see the kids. And and, and it's not easy and, to undo. And, and it's yeah, and it can't be undone by anybody but a judge. Yeah, and you have to actually appear, and the judges will make you actually appear and in even, court. And, th- and that's that's. That's assuming that the DA will get out of the way. Yeah, you need... And frequently, they will not. (laughs) They will not. And the domestic violence charges that exist could potentially have an impact on somebody's permanent record. They can keep you from owning firearms. They can have... Getting a job. Oh, man. I mean, domestic assault is, I would say... Getting an apartment. If you have a DV... Well, there's a lot of apartments around here that that's it. You're done. You're not renting here. That's exactly right. And that's something as lawyers we don't get to see as much of. That's kind of the fallout that happens after we've been involved is how that. And I think that as a lawyer, I can tell you, I've, I probably don't appreciate how much that stuff impacts people going yeah. forward because we're in this little microcosm of. We're trying to fix the. I, I tell people sometimes I'm kind of like an emergency room surgeon. Like I'm not going to be with you for the entire process from here to peaceful, happily ever after, whatever that might look like. I'm here to get you, to prevent you from bleeding out and to get you to a place where you can take a deep breath and look at what the long-term solutions, you know, I can't walk for years and years with someone from the disaster that was that day 
or their entire life to complete recovery. No, and if, if they would allow us that opportunity, I would love it. I'd love to hear updates of good things happening for our clients. And but the problem we get into is the only calls I get is when the sky's falling. That's you know, right. Nobody ever calls us. I and mean, we've got, I got a case right now. I was no one calls up. me and says, everything's great. I just wanted to hire a lawyer. Yeah, and- I just won the lottery. How do I spend this money? You right? know? No, I had a, a case I was working on before I came here today. We got a, a, a guy down in a, a lower county um, that had has an alcohol problem, and he— Acted really inappropriately one night, and resulted in him having staples in his forehead. He went to he fought fought with a car windshield, and the car won. Yeah. The car's going to win ten out of ten times. I've, yeah. I've told him, um, but th- that's somebody who needs treatment, and we're in the process of getting the treatment. So a lot of times, what we do is not just defend the charge; it's try to find the problem, and then fix the problem. I do try, when I say what I said, I don't mean that I that I just only superficially deal with the, the case at the courthouse. I do try to leave people better off than I found them. Well, no, I, I didn't take it that way. No, 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 I, I understand. Was, but, I, I was, the, but, like, sometimes that mess is so big that, like, they're not going to need a lawyer no. that does what I do. They need family. They need that, yeah, friends. Yeah. They need doctors. They yep. need psychiatrists. They need therapists. I mean, yep. you know, the, it's one thing to go, okay, you're punished for what you did. But the reality is we have an opportunity as lawyers to try to figure out what the problem is. I mean, in this case... Um, I, I've told people so many times, you know, they get a DUI or they get a possession or they get something drug or alcohol related. And I tell them, hey, look, worst case scenario... Your legal problem is over in 12 months or 24 months. What you are actually dealing with here is a lifelong struggle. So right. Whether it's anger or substance yeah. so abuse. Like, or... So like shift your horizon, right? Like mm-hmm. we'll get you through this legal problem. That'll be over fairly soon in the grand scheme of things. But if you don't address this much bigger persistent problem, then it is only a matter of time before we're back together again under yeah. bad circumstances. Well, and we get an opportunity. That's a great point. We get an opportunity to kind of have something that's hanging over their head. I mean, this guy that's going into treatment, hopefully starting tomorrow, the idea of this charge pending is enough to make him kind of make a, a sort change. Of the proverbial sword of Damocles. Yeah, and the other matter we worked on this morning with, with Jamie here in, in Williamson County is we have a, a young man that's in, in serious trouble mentally, and, and he's had major problems. And because Jamie filed the bond motion to revoke his bond that was our impetus to then go to him and say look you need help and he acknowledged that and then we were able to use that as our our method to get him the help and it was almost like me and the da were in essence we're on the other side of each other but we're going towards the same goal as getting this kid help and he's he's now currently uh getting help which is great so uh shift focus real quick um criminal case client comes in tells you that what they're charged with or whatever do you ask or do you want to know if they're guilty? Even if they did what they were, if yeah. they, if they did it. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to know. All right. I mean, because like, so people may wonder, well, why wouldn't you as the lawyer want to know? As far as I can tell, the only reason that a lawyer might not directly ask is because we're not allowed ethically to put on perjured testimony. So like if, if you are contemplating that your client might be their own best witness, ethically we're not allowed to let someone mm-hmm. go up there and lie when we know that that's a lie correct yeah but that's one side of the coin the other side of the coin is i don't want to be the only person in the room that doesn't know what happened 
Well, I've, so I've, I've handled it differently. I mean, this is a great question. This is like the ultimate lawyer question is, and I get asked this at dinner parties, how do you represent somebody you know is guilty? I don't know they're guilty yet. The guilty is the result of the case. But <laughs> right. um, no, I think I've handled them differently. I mean, the average case where the guy gets pulled over and, or DUI or so I'm asking if he had something to drink that night, he tells me, I guess in essence, that's kind of him admitting yeah. that he did it. But, um, you know, simple possession cases or drug possession cases, it's in their car. I, you know, I don't need to ask him if it right. was theirs. Yeah. But I've had cases, and we've got one right now um, that I won't, I won't you know, talk about names, but I've never asked the client. And um, it's, a, it's a serious charge. It's a murder case. I've never asked the client. And right. I, frankly, I don't, I don't, at this point, I don't necessarily care. I don't. Yeah. I, I'm prepared to defend the case. It's going to trial. And, right. you know, I don't, I don't care what, you, what, what they have to say. Um, <laughs> it, but that's, that's, I think that's unique. I mean, the question is, do I want to know? Yeah, of course I do. I think clients are hesitant to tell you that they sold the drug or that they drank right. all the alcohol or that they beat up the person because they think maybe that you won't fight as hard for them if they, think, yeah. if they, if they know you did it. And the funny thing is, is I tell them all the time, we, we have the seven meeting rule. Mark, my law partner, made a joke a long time ago. said it's about the seventh meeting. I usually get the full truth. Right. You know, yeah. but I also, I don't want to put it. Unless them you can microwave it. I had a guy one time come in and told me this story and I finally, I listened and I nodded and I, took notes and I listened and I nodded and he spun this tale to me and I looked at him and I said now when did you get arrested he was like uh, 10 days ago I said and when did you get out of jail and he said uh, seven days ago and I said so you had 10 days to come up with a story and this is the best bullshit you could come up with <laughs> I love it I joke I mean I'll sometimes tell my paralegal I'll say that was great I mean I'm really awesome. entertained that was a good story I don't believe it but it was a great story yeah. I've actually we had a case recently where I bet my associate and my paralegal both um, dessert or they, they've got some place that's a bakery they were like we want to get cinnamon rolls yeah, when you lose you're buying when you sweets because the guy came in and told us a story about the car that had been seized by the, the same civil asset for right. the guy's car was seized and his story was was really tough to believe and i told him i said no way i just don't i just don't buy it and they said no 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 he said it was you know yeah. well lo and behold at the end of the day we end up getting this car back for him with no cost and they dismissed the civil asset forfeiture so they say they've won I say I just did a really good job, yeah, yeah. but but no, it's it's one of those things. Not where, guilty is not the I, I same the, as innocent. And I think the worst thing we can do as a lawyer is prejudge because I can tell you, truth is not always believable, and believable is not always the truth. And I I have a hard time. I mean, I you know the yeah, idea. I use, I use Occam's razor on the one hand, right? Like the simplest explanation that doesn't require a whole host yeah, of yeah, I do. Of, right, like. What makes the most sense here? That's the one if, on the other. If I don't hand, understand it, if I personally don't understand it, I know there's something not true about it. Right. Because we we should understand what happened. If it makes right. sense to me, right. right, good or bad, right, it's got to make sense. It's got to right. connect. And if yeah. it doesn't make sense, I know there's a missing part. Yeah. So and, and usually we find out soon enough what the missing well, part is. Here's how I finally have been able to ferret the truth out of people when I think that they've not been candid with me. I'll tell them, "Hey, look." I don't much like surprises in the courtroom, um, and I don't want to be the only person in the room that doesn't know what happened. You know, the victim knows, the witnesses know their story, the DA thinks they know their story, the detective, you know, everybody has their narrative, right? And all I've got is like sort of what you tell me compared to what the other people say. So I don't want to be the only person in the room that doesn't know what happened. But if I get surprised in the courtroom, I am momentarily embarrassed, but I'm going out the same door I came in, and I'm going home. That's right. You, on the other hand, 
just denied the only person in the room working for you the chance to do the best job possible. Mm -hmm. So, you want to run that story by me again, or do you want me to just run with that? Yeah. And I think those are, I mean, those are, and you maybe agree, that, those are probably the exception. I think the majority yeah, of our cases. Yeah, most people come in. Man, most people come in and they're like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, slow down. Well, and they've already told the police the same thing. So yeah, they've already, right. They've already made admissions. Now but, would be a good time to remind people, don't talk to the police. But I've had a handful of cases where they tell me what they're saying, it did not happen. I was right. not there. That was not me. Right. And those are the cases that we, 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 we live That's for correct. and yeah. also can't sleep from. Oh, I mean, man. There's nothing harder than defending the actually innocent. No, and you're you're so right. And we had a case that that, that we had an innocent man that was going to go to trial back when uh, Holmgren in Nashville was pursuing all those section, you know, all those child abuse cases with no regard for the facts. He just set him for trial and would go trial, lose or win or lose. And we had a guy that was charged with child abuse that absolutely did not do it. And we were prepared to try the case. And Zimmer, or, um, Holmgren got fired the Wednesday before our Monday trial. Settled it. Well, and then it got reassigned and it got dismissed. I mean, that's how bad of a case. They were about to try this guy under Haley's Law, looking at 15 to 25. And instead, they, instead they just not dismissed the case. That's how bad of a case. And that's how reckless he was as a prosecutor. So, um, all right. Assume that money is no object. What you, you're, you're going to make the same money doing this thing, but you can't practice law. What is it you go do? Cook. You go cook? Yeah. Go make food for people? Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. What do you make? I don't know. I'm not a good cook. Oh, so you want to... You, I want to be a step, chef. Step one is learn to cook. I've got it. So my wife always jokes. The idea of being in that kitchen environment... Right. And at time not... I mean, I just... I've always felt like... Anthony Bourdain was a guy I really liked. I know he committed suicide not long ago, but... Um, I always loved that book, Kitchen Confidential, and him growing up and, and becoming a chef in New York in those back rooms. And it just reminds me of kind of the back room of a courthouse, like just getting down and dirty. But I, I truly believe that if I could come back and money was no object, that I'd love to be in the back of a kitchen somewhere. All right, man. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Anything else you want to add? Man, I appreciate you having me on. So where do people find you? Uh, they can get me um, at freemanfuson.com. It's our website. Uh, betternojoe.com or uh, betternojoe Instagram. Yep, search for him on betternojoe Instagram. There you go. See, see my friend. Thanks, my, thanks for having me. All right, thanks a lot. So there you go, a frustrated chef. I'm beginning to wonder if every trial lawyer hasn't thought about what they would do if they weren't doing what we do. Well, in any event, uh, if you enjoy what I'm doing, click subscribe. Check me out on social media. I've got the handle ready for trial on just about every platform. Uh, I've got a bunch more episodes coming up that are already recorded and a bunch of other people that want to record with me, so I imagine there'll be at least a few more episodes of this. Until then, this is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial.